According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for growth. Our growth comes through the scriptures, and we get a new chapter today. We're moving on into Genesis chapter 22. So join me, if you would, this morning in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, one of the better-known chapters, I think, in all of Genesis. This is the sacrifice of Isaac. After waiting all of these years to finally bring Isaac into the world, uh, it's now time to kill him. And uh, this is how God tests his, uh, the faith of his father Abraham. And the details that come out of this, I think, are remarkable. And then, of course, the prophetic typology is, is remarkable. It's more than, it's undeniable, really, for what it is. And, and there's a lot of I've got a lot of fondness and affection for, for teaching this, uh, obviously, because I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and my father who sacrificed his son so I could have eternal life, it means a lot to me. But uh, this is a powerful passage, and one that if you ever have an opportunity, if you ever have an opportunity, if, if the Lord ever brings you face to face with any Muslim people, uh, Islam changes this story. And in the Quran, it's not uh, Isaac on this altar, it's Ishmael on this altar, all right? And, and it's, it's interesting because they change the story in the Quran, but they also change the story about Jesus. And they deny that Jesus died on the cross. And they say that he only appeared to die, and he was disguised, and it was really, they got other ideas for how Jesus didn't die on the cross, but he was caught up without death. And uh, the Muslims will be very furious. Uh, and so have some discernment. Uh, have some uh, wisdom, because you're going to be making some people furious. But uh, they will furiously deny that God has a son, uh, and so Jesus is not his son. And then they will furiously deny that he died on the cross. And so those are a couple of big, pretty big obstacles to overcome. And yet, this chapter is suited for discussions related to these things, because they changed it from Isaac to Ishmael. And even if you don't get them to admit that, at least you can start asking them, well, what did this teach? What did this prove? That Abraham had great faith? Okay, what else did it prove? What else did it teach? And what is the significance of a father who's willing to give his son to die? Okay, and, and you may not get anywhere with it. I, I don't, I'm not claiming that I have had remarkable success, like I've led a thousand Muslims to Christ. But I know I've given many Muslims things to think about that hopefully will be planted seeds that, uh, that they will make those connections themselves when it comes to this chapter and, uh, and the work of our Savior on the cross. So uh, stay tuned for that. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer and dedicate our time for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the edification of the saints. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning so thankful, thankful for truth, thankful for brothers and sisters that are hungry for truth. And Father, we are looking forward to this message, this series of messages, everything you have for us out of this chapter. Equip us, Father, with uh, the gospel information that we can take, not just to Muslims, to everybody, Father, this lost and dying world. We are surrounded and we are outnumbered by unbelievers, and uh, the, broad is the gate that leads to destruction. And we, we understand this, Father, so we thank you for passages that have such wonderful clarity, that have such profound truth built in, and uh, just open our eyes to see how we can use these. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Something else that's curious to me is um, believers that have viewpoints related to Scripture and they, um, so much so that they will love the Pauline epistles, they'll love the theology of the New Testament, and almost denigrate the stories of the Old Testament. You know, as if Daniel in the lion's den, or, or Noah's ark, or the, the Red Sea, or any of these things, the, the, as if Bible stories are for Sunday school. Bible stories are for children or for that, that once you grow in doctrine, now what you need is theology. You don't need the Bible stories. You just need to grow in the theology. And to me, that's a flawed approach anyway, because there is profound theology in these stories. And it goes marvelously with uh, the passages of Scripture that they tend to idolize when they, uh, when they emphasize the, the Pauline literature. So, 
Um, yes, this is a Bible story, and it is theologically deep, and we, we need to recognize this. In fact, so much of the Bible that's centered on the, the begetter and the begotten one is, uh, is what we deal with, with God the Father and God the Son and our role in His image. What are we called upon to do in our uh, status of, as God's image bearers? So it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, Hanini, behold, me, and uh, present and reporting for duty, sir. Uh, whatever you want to, uh, military phrase you want to give to this reply. But he said, here I am. And we've been tracking these, in fact, so much so that I created a visual filter that I'm hoping this is better. I was, I was really not liking the orange and the brown, so I changed it to a lighter tan and a pink. And uh, if, if we're secure with pink and we're okay with pink, then I'm going to keep using pink for uh, the words of God to Abraham are in the tan and the words of Abraham to God are in the, uh, the pink. All right, and, and the whole point being I want them to be visually uh, j jumping out of the page uh, even if you're on the back row in this, in this well-lit room. So uh, that's why I made the change. The brown was hard to read, somebody had told me. All right, so Abraham, he said, here I am. And part of doing this, by the way, is uh, because of the nature of our studies in the Abrahamic covenant. The fact is that the Abrahamic covenant has come in successive iterations. The Abrahamic covenant has come a little here, a little there, starting in chapter 12, and we've had pieces of it that have come in chapter 12, at least two pieces, some would say three, in chapter 13, in chapter 14, in chapter 15, in chapter 17 especially. That's where circumcision was, uh, was included. And so in all of these different iterations of the Abrahamic covenant, I think it's useful to chart out the progressive unfolding conversations that the Lord had with Abraham, because I believe a comprehensive uh, Abrahamic covenant is more than Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. All right, that you have to have the totality of every interaction between the Lord and Abraham, and even including, I didn't used to think this, but even including um, like chapter 18, for example, when he has him in for dinner and, and he actually speaks to Sarah and, and Sarah laughs. And th those episodes, too, are uh, to be included in a comprehensive study of the Abrahamic covenant. It's every interaction between the Lord and Abraham that forms the basis of the unconditional covenant, the promises of Abraham that apply to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. And so I'm coloring these uh, to try to chart it out in a better manner than some have done. I think Fruchtenbaum did a great job, but I think he also <clears throat> maybe fudged a little bit so that he could get seven interactions, and, and I think maybe we, we should have eight or nine even, even if uh, it's not as glamorous as the biblical number seven by the time we're done with, uh, by the time we're done with it. <clears throat> and so, for example, is this, is this one encounter or two? Abraham, here I am. Take now your son, your only son. I think it's a continuation of the one encounter that, that's here. Uh, there will be subsequent revelation that comes later in the chapter, though. And do we count that as the same, or do we credit that as a separate encounter? That's a, another question that some people wrestle with. Here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So there's specificity on the land, and then there is a non-specificity on the precise exact mountain. That will be made clear as he gets closer. So he's got to go to the land of Moriah, and then once he's there, the, uh, the specific mountain will be identified, and that's where the offering will take place. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And so again, the place of which God had told him by name was called Mount Moriah, or not Mount Moriah, excuse me, the land of Moriah, and then to a mountain to be designated later, like one of those baseball trays for a player to be named later, okay? So go to the land of Moriah, to the mountain I will show you in a future promised demonstration. And so based upon what he was told, and we're going to detail this because how many similarities are here with his original call in chapter 12? 
you know, to, to leave your family, to leave your house, your father's house, to leave your land, to go to a land which I will show you. So he went forth out of Ur the Chaldees, not knowing what land he was going to uh, end up in, and just walking by faith. And now it's like, here we are, all these years later, and, uh, and again, I want you to go somewhere, and when you get there, you're going to kill your son. And in a, in a ritual, in a, in a sacrifice, in a burnt offering, offer him there. It doesn't say murder him. It says offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so, yes, this is child sacrifice. This is human sacrifice, depending on how old you think Isaac is at this point. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's curious. You read a hundred commentaries, and, and I have. You read, you read all the different opinions of what's happening here, and, and some are just in utter denial. Oh, no, no, the Lord would never ask that. Okay? Well, if that's not what he's asking, then why is this a test of faith? Okay, because that is what he's asking, and that's the point. Theologically, it's necessary. And obviously, Abraham has no question in his mind what's expected of him, because not only is he taking his son, but he's taking wood, splitting wood for the burnt offering. A lot of discussion about why is he taking wood with him from uh, Beersheba. Uh, was there, is, is the land of Moriah, is it absent wood? Does it not have appropriate wood? Um, different questions there. Uh, but he is splitting the wood for the burnt offering. He takes, uh, and he's going to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, oh wow, there's a nice biblical number. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And I do like the, the typology of this, and I like the, the blessings of this. And, and we can't go overboard in this chapter because Hebrews itself tells us that this episode is typology. That when Abraham offered his son, he received him back as a type. And it's explicitly called a tupas, a type, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. But for three days, he believes his son is dead. For three days, he, 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 in the whole journey, in his mind, his son has to die. And it's going to be by his hand. It's going to be by the hand of his own father that his son, the promised son, is, is going to die. And it's not until the third day, then, that his son lives again and he gets his son back. Okay? I love the faith that's expressed here. So on the third day, Abram raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now again, we don't have, maybe some more detail would be helpful. Some of us always want more. Some of us are never satisfied no matter how much detail is in there. We always want a hundred more details put in. But, you know, was this kind of like the dove that descended and landed on his head and John the Baptist said, okay, that's the one. Was there a lightning that struck the mountain? Was there a glow? Was there a Shekinah glory? Was there, how was it when he got to the land of Moriah, which by the way is Jerusalem, it's around Jerusalem. It's, it's, um, it, it's curious to me how many years from here he's been in this neighborhood before. This is where he and Melchizedek worshiped in chapter 14. But Melchizedek's not mentioned here, and Salem isn't mentioned here. Like, both were mentioned in chapter 14. And the, the absence of those localities, and, and, or those proper names, is, is very telling in this, in this chapter. But he sees the place from a distance, and he knows it's the place. He knows he's in the ge geographic will of God, and now he has the specificity for which mountain he needs to go to. I personally kind of think maybe it was just a... Maybe a rainbow landed on it, or a lightning strike, or something. There was, there was an indication, that's where you've got to go. And so as soon as he saw it, don't know if Isaac saw it or not, or the servants, but as soon as he saw it, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. Boy, does this verse get a lot of attention, okay? Because we want to know, uh, what's the vocabulary here for these young men? And what's the vocabulary here for this lad? All right. And uh, while we're at it, we can, no, the donkey's okay. And we can, but the statement of what's made here, okay, he's called a lad. Ishmael was also called a lad, even though we know that he was 16 plus, the weaning age. And this is what we're dealing with. We're guessing. We don't know how old he, Isaac was when Sarah weaned him. We don't know how old Ishmael was. Because it's, it's, it's not told. It just says, after these things. Arnold Fruchtenbaum believes it was 30 years. And that, uh, that he was a, an adult male. That he was 30 years old. But he's called a lad. Okay? 
I guess if you're 130, you can call your 30-year-old son a lad. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sold. I, I think likely he's younger than that. I think likely uh, he doesn't have to be 30. Yes, it's typology for Jesus, but Jesus started his ministry being at least 30 years of age. He ministered for three and a half years. He may have even been pushing 40 before he hung on the cross, depending on how early you like to put the, uh, the birth of Christ, 4 to 6 B.C. Anyway, um, boy, am I getting sidetracked. I can't do this. We've got to stay with the notes and stay in the material, but this chapter is easy to do this with. There is so much that's, that's, that's parallel here. The time frame is unspecified. Unspecified. And, and same thing when he was weaned in the previous chapter. We don't know. Was he weaned at two? Was he weaned at three? Was he weaned at five? Any, anything in that range. All we know is that the age difference between Ishmael and Isaac was 16 years. All right? And so 16 plus the weaning time is how old Ishmael is. And now we don't know how old Isaac is on this episode. Old enough to carry the wood. That, I think, is significant. As they, uh, as they part ways with the servants here. Uh, well, let me, let me read this as well. So yes, he rose early, they get going, no time to waste, he's got his commands, and why wait? So he's got a, he's got a three-day journey to make, some 50 or more miles, and um, so he takes two young men, and he takes Isaac, his son, split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So uh, he couldn't even claim that he, he got lost or didn't know the way. Uh, when, when the Lord said, go to the land of Moriah, Abraham didn't say, I never heard of that, what are you talking about? He knew, even if we have puzzles, uh, Abraham had no such puzzles. He knew what the land of Moriah was all about. And uh, so he goes there. And as he gets there, as he's within that range, within that territory, he raises his eyes, sees the place from a distance. So the divine indication comes. God promised to show him. Now he sees it. It's going to be on that mountain. So Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. Okay, stay here with the donkey. Uh, that's all I needed you for, and, and, and we'll come back and meet him in a little bit. But stay here with the donkey. And he's thinking, you know, when Jesus took the disciples into the garden, he didn't take all of them, but he took three of them. And then he said, now you guys stay here. And then he went a little bit further on by himself. So he tells these young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship. Kind of an interesting phrase. I mean, what else do you call it if it's a burnt offering? It's a burnt offering that you're commanded to give to the Lord God. That's worship, is it not? Yeah, but it's my son. Can I still call that worship? If God told me to do it? Man. See why this is a test? And plus, he waited 100 years for this son too, right? We will worship. And we will return to you. The verb for worship and the verb for return, he's applying those actions both to himself and to his son. And what kind of faith is that? We're going to go there, I'm going to kill him, and then we're coming back. <laughs> That's, uh, and then, of course, the giveaway. We, we know, uh, there's no spoiler alerts, I hope, for anybody in this room. We know that Isaac doesn't die, okay? We know that there's a ram caught in the thicket. We know that the Lord provides. We know that there's a kinsman redeemer. There's a substitute. All of these doctrines are, are powerful. Uh, we're we're going to try to take it verse by verse and pretend we don't know the things we know so that we can glean the doctrine that we have to glean out of this. But we will go. We will worship. We will return. We will return. And that kind of faith is, is staggering. We're told in Hebrews that Abraham considers that God is able to raise the dead. And, and if, he wants, if he wants him to die, that doesn't mean he has to stay dead. God is able to raise the dead and restore physical life. And why does he know that? He doesn't have any Bible. And even if he had a Bible, there's no stories of anyone being raised from the dead prior to Isaac, prior to this episode. Right? There, there are three resuscitations of physical life in the Old Testament, but they don't come until the divided kingdom. They don't come until Elijah and Elisha. So uh, as far as humanity goes, from Abraham down to, to uh, from Adam through Noah down to Abraham, there's never once been an example of somebody who died and was restored to life. And yet Abraham believed that he could do that if he wanted to. 
Yet the understanding of God's omnipotence and God's power to do such things, should he choose to do that. So stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship. We will return to you. So Abraham took the wood. And, and I'm just giving a big idea here this morning. We're going to go back. There's more details we haven't touched on yet. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. You see what this pictures? If you know how the, how the cross worked, Jesus had to carry his own cross. And here's Isaac carrying his own lumber, his own wood. And he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife. I mean, did he carry this fire all the way from Beersheba? What kind of fire is this? Why don't you just start a new fire when you get there? there there's more going on here. And again, I want more details. I'm, I'm, I'm the worst one in this room. I want more details in the text than what the text actually provides us. But the fire, remember the, the oven and the torch were significant in the Abrahamic covenant back in chapter 15. And the representation of those as far as fire, and, and everywhere I, he goes, he builds an altar, and there's fire for every altar. It, it, it's curious to me. He wasn't just content. In other words, he wasn't just content to go to the mountain and start a fire there. He's bringing fire with him from his altar in Beersheba. And they're walking on together, just like the oven and the torch passed together between the, the dead animal pieces of the sacrificial animal in Genesis 15. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. It's the very same language that we had at the top of the chapter. When God said, Abraham, Isaac said, Daddy. Okay? Isaac said, My father. And the answer was identical to both. When the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham said, Hineni. And when Isaac said, My father, Abraham says, Hineni. I am here. Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Okay? Now, I don't know how old he is, but he's a, he's a sharp young man. Okay? If he's, is, is he six? Is he seven? I should have written them down. All the different commentaries and all the different theories. You got every age from, you know, the youngest of ages up to, like I said, up to 30. Um, and every number probably in between has been guessed by somebody. Uh, one of the better, more conservative commentaries is, is very, very insistent that he was a seven-year-old. I don't know why. But he's old enough to know how burnt offerings work. And he's old enough to understand worship. He's probably seen it. He's probably helped his father with any number of sacrifices in the past. So he says, all right, we've got everything we need except the animal. The fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Great question. <laughs> Glad you asked. And this is the father's answer, which, which to me, I love this, okay? If any of you are dads, any of you have children, you, you always know there's questions that you can't answer, or maybe you can, but you don't want to. This is a terrible moment for him to say, go ask your mother. <laughs> Notice she's not on this trip. That's not an accident, Okay. Um, and then sometimes you just don't know. He knew. God will provide himself the lamb. There's different ways you can read that in the Hebrew. God himself will provide, or God will provide himself the lamb. And I love it, because you can take it either way, and go ahead, take it both ways while you're at it. God will provide himself the Lamb. And that's how we got saved. Because God provided Himself. That God the Son became the God-man and God provided Himself the Lamb. God will provide. And God will see to it. God will see to it. God will provide. All of the, the verbs here, a lot of the nouns, a lot of this chapter is full of ra'ah. It's full of seeing in the Hebrew. And things that are seen, even moriah, with the M prefix, is still ra'ah, with the M prefix in front of it. And um, there is so much seeing. When God provides, he sees to it. 
We have the same idiom in modern English. If, if I'm going to provide for something, I'm going to see to it that it happens. Okay? I've got to provide for my pulpit supply when I'm at a pastor's conference next month. And so I'm going to see to it that the pulpit is filled on the Wednesday night that I'm gone. Okay? In fact, I already did. And so there's other things. If you see to it, you're providing for it. God will provide. God will see to it. God is a God who sees, and God is a God who provides. And we can be thankful for that. So the two of them walked on together. As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I love the, the harmony, the like-mindedness, the agreement. The Son is a volitional participant in this because he is walking by his Father's side and he is bearing his Father's burden. He's bearing his own burden. He's bearing the wood himself. So yeah, I don't think he's a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. Is he 10? Is he 12? I don't know. Young enough to be a lad old enough to, to uh, carry a load of wood. All right, so they come to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac. Bound his son Isaac. This is where the, uh, the Hebrews, the Jews get a name for, uh, for this, by the way, in the binding. And they pick up on the verb for binding, and this is where they call the, uh, this episode is called the, the binding. I'll have the notes for that when we get to that verse. Laid him on the altar, on top of the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Okay? So knife in hand to slay his son, the infinitive of purpose. You've got, this is what he's intending to do. Okay? Was the hand actually in a downward movement when God stopped him? Maybe. Seems like it could be. Again, is that, a, is that a specificity in the text that we don't entirely have, but we, we think about it? But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. That's twice the length of the first call. The first call at the beginning of the chapter was just Abraham with a Hanini. But now it's Abraham, Abraham. Urgency. And he said, Hanini, here I am. So now is this the eighth appearance? Is this a continuation of the seventh appearance? How are we numbering these? How are we designating the iterations of the Abrahamic covenant? All right? And I think it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth a careful look. So, let's back up now and get some details, okay? Because there's, there's a lot here, and um, I don't know how, many, how long it's going to take to teach this chapter. Part of me wants to just do it in one Sunday, but no. Part of me wants to take 10 Sundays, 20 Sundays. There is so much that's here. In not just the story, but the, the theology that's built in. Well, let's start with after these things that God tested Abraham. I love the fact that uh, the reader is alerted at the top of this narrative that God's command to Abraham is a test. And so for you and I, and for really anybody, once Moses puts this on paper, for anybody reading Genesis we are alerted right at the top before anything else that God is testing Abraham. And so that's a huge benefit for the reader. That's a benefit, that's, that's a, a benefit for the reader to know that what, what they hear coming out of God's mouth, like offer your son a burnt offering, what they hear coming out of God's mouth is a part of a test. And so we can kind of suspend our disbelief. We can suspend our, our horror and our revulsion. We can suspend uh, the, um, the, the problems that we have with, uh, with what would otherwise be a, uh, a, a bloodthirsty god of vengeance or a bloodthirsty, um, a horrible Molech-type god that Yahweh is not Molech, but he appears to be like Molech in this, in this test. And so while the reader is alerted, don't think for a minute that Abraham is alerted. Okay? We are reading Moses' record of this episode where Moses records God tested Abraham. But Abraham didn't have the advantage of reading the book of Genesis <laughs> and reading, oh, this is a test. Okay? So at the top of this chapter, what's Abraham supposed to believe? He's going to go and sacrifice his son. 
And is he surprised? Is he shocked? He's willing to do what he was told to do. He has faith. You know, I, there's been a tremendous amount of growing up since um, she's my sister, you know, and, and the fear and the lying and the lack of faith. We've seen several lack of faith episodes for Abraham, most recently of which was chapter 20 when he lied about his wife. But since that episode, have we seen any lack of faith? Have we seen any shortcomings? Have we seen... There, there was a moment... And from that moment forward, we have maximum faith in Abraham's life uh, forevermore. And so he's not questioning the Lord. In the past, he would have questioned. He said, Lord, uh, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Where, where's the son you keep telling me about? And he would ask questions. Not so here. You know, he's told burnt offering, and he doesn't ask the son of promise. Okay. The one through whom I'm, I'm the father of many nations. <laughs> the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. My only begotten son, my one of a kind, unique son. The one who's clearly not married yet with any children of his own. And, and you want me to kill him? It, it does bring into question the future of the Abrahamic covenant. If, if, if it's, this is the boy through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God wants him offered as a sacrifice. Okay? And he doesn't even have Leviticus. He has nothing to work with whereby he could be told, although he, I guess you could say, he has the substitutionary penal, the, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement that was given to Adam and Eve, that was observed by Cain and Abel, that was observed by uh, Noah. All of the animal ritual up till now, even without written scripture, the animal ritual is understood to be substitutionary. So how much of that blessed him to understand the need of a substitute? We don't know. So the reader is alerted at the top of this narrative that God commanded uh, to Abraham is a test. That's what this is, it's a test. It's not what he really intends to happen. But he's told that as a test of, of his faith. And so does that make God a liar? Because he said something that he didn't intend to have happen. No. But he's not a liar. It's not a lie. The motivation is what makes the lie. Okay? It's like the difference between a joke and, you know, you're, you can tease, you can, you can say something that's factually not true, and then the punchline hits, and ha, 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 okay, I get it. So that's not a lie, okay? Also, if there is a teaching mechanism whereby you allow, for the sake of argument, an untrue statement to, to stand, okay? Like with the rich young ruler, Jesus said, okay, you've done it. You know, he was convinced he was good enough to go to heaven. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, you're just missing one more thing. He says, give away all your money. That's the last thing you've got to do. Give away all your money. Now, theologically here, are we on shaky ground? Is Jesus a liar? Did he just commit a sin? Is he now disqualified from going to the cross and saving all of us? What's happening here? And thankfully, we can relax and say, no, no, Jesus is not a liar. And, and for the sake of argument, to assume a premise simply to illustrate how absurd it is can be highly instructive, Right? I mean, Rush Limbaugh had a radio career for 30 years going on and on about illustrating absurdity by being absurd. And say, oh, this is, this is what you believe? Okay, and then carry it to the conclusion that just leaves the person feeling, you know, dumb for, oh, is that where that goes? I don't want to carry it to that extent. Can't avoid it. Jesus used that teaching method. That's what I'm saying. There's other examples, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 8.2 and um, this is in the second giving of the law to the uh, wilderness generation after the passing of the Exodus generation. All the commandments I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Of course, they were faithless. They didn't make it. They de they're dead, and now it's your turn. You shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years 
that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the doctrine of testing, I think, is significant because God's omniscient and he knows everything. But he wants to know these things on the experiential basis, not simply on the omniscience basis. He wants to know it by seeing it. Because this is, remember, this is also his display to the angels that are watching. And so testing you to know what was in your heart. We're going to see this with Abraham. When he stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, he says, now I know. He says, now I know, as if he was oblivious, he was ignorant. It's not open theism at work here, okay? God is not learning while he watches what we do. But he's knowing in additional ways. You can know things in multiple ways. And so it's his desire. Remember, he's not, it's not deism. He's, he's a very active creator God who is transcendent and imminent. He works within his creation. And he walks and he talks and he asks questions and he sees things and he's demonstrating to the angels in the angelic conflict. We understand that. So testing you, leading you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you. Keep that in mind. Leading equals humility. You want to be led by the Spirit? Prepare to be humbled by the Spirit. Testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or are you a fair-weather Christian? And when, tough gets, when stuff gets tough, stuff gets tough, you, um, you decide you're not going to be faithful anymore. Verse 16 of the same chapter. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Again, testing. And uh, as God, God is good at this. He wants adult children with him forever, not uh, infants in a heavenly nursery. Deuteronomy 13.3. Here's something else he permits. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true. Remember, signs and wonders are supposed to be testimony of, of divine credentials that God has sent them. <coughs> but they're not the only sign. You have to correlate it with the message itself. Concerning what she spoke to you, saying, let's go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. Oh, wait a minute. The Lord God wouldn't do that because commandment number one is you shall have no other gods before me. So this obviously has to be a false prophet. Why is God permitting him to do these signs and wonders then? Okay, he's permitting the false prophets, but he's also permitting Satan, the one empowering the false wonders and the signs. Well, don't listen to that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He permits it, again, as a testing mechanism. And so all the things, and this, you know, part of us rebels against this. We wouldn't do this if we were God. You know, why let them do that? You know, it's, it's, the more I understand volition and what God vested, angelity and humanity both with volition, and how he honors the volition, so much so that the law of sowing and reaping applies, that we reap what we sow, even the bad decisions, especially the bad decisions, because we're image bearers of God and we're accountable for the choice, volitional choices we make. And so we face the consequences as image bearers for every decision. More testing. Even Jesus, I love this, in John 6, you know, he learned from his father how to do this, and boy, does he do it real well. So here's Jesus in large crowds. He's at the peak of his popularity here, following him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And he went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. This is so staggering because Normally, every other year prior to this, if it was Passover, Jesus would go to Jerusalem. But not this year. This year he's on a mountain in Galilee. He's not going to Jerusalem. This is the only Passover he ever missed in the, in the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Maybe even in his 30 plus year entire life. 
We know from childhood they went there consistently. All right. The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Don't know why he was picking off Philip, but maybe he was just closest. Who knows? Okay. He wasn't the treasurer. Judas was the treasurer of all things. But, um, but he asked Philip, and, uh, and, and these large crowds, that also gets my attention because not only is Jesus skipping Passover, these large crowds are also skipping Passover. Why aren't they making it down to Jerusalem? They're commanded to go there. What is it they understand about Jesus that uh, leads them to stick with him instead of going to Jerusalem? Okay, I got a lot of questions about these guys. Same thing with John the Baptist and his disciples. Why, after he announced the Christ, why did John the Baptist still have disciples after that? Why didn't all of them just start following Jesus and leave John the Baptist retired or out of business or, you know, shut down his ministry? Where are we to buy bread that all these may eat? So, yeah, you start looking at a room and you realize, hmm, okay, didn't plan for this. Okay, like yesterday, oh my goodness. The funeral, there must have been 500 people at that funeral yesterday. And I don't know that they planned on that much food for the uh, reception afterwards. I don't know. But you can imagine that you can get a little overwhelmed by the, the finances when, uh, when you thought you had a certain budget for the, <laughs> for the, for the, uh, the meal and then you got you know, 5,000 extra people there. It's a good thing Jesus can feed the 5,000, right? All right. But the whole point is Jesus does not intend to pay cash to feed anybody on this, on this day. Is he lying to Philip? See, he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And so, he knows what he intends to do. He knows what's going to happen. My, I, I believe he was fully briefed, you know, a day early, a week early, whatever. I mean, somebody, the father told him, don't go to Jerusalem. He's not, he's not accidentally not in Jerusalem. Every, every Old Testament prophet would have daily briefings as far as what they could anticipate coming up on, on these particular days. And, and Jesus, remember, is an Old Testament prophet functioning in this way. So he's saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So he knows he's going to multiply the loaves and the fish. I believe he picked out Philip, because look what happens here. Philip's got an answer. Maybe Philip was good with numbers. He was great at, uh, at uh, estimating, who knows. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. But one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And it's curious to me that the, the, the tandem, anytime you see Andrew and Philip working together, usually it's bringing people to Jesus. And uh, anyway, this is how it works out. He multiplies the loaves and fish. It's a happy ending. But the point being, Jesus asked a question knowing that the answer didn't matter. And sometimes the answer doesn't matter, but the answer helps to reveal what the thought process is in coming up with the answer. All of this is very instructive. Instructive for the disciples, instructive for Jesus, learning how his disciples think. And coming back to uh, Abraham, instructive for Abraham to see, to, for him for three days to be convinced that he's going to go through with this. And that he's going to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, which means he's going to slit his throat, he's going to drain the blood, he's going to carve up the pieces, because entrails go one place and, and the, uh, the different other internal organs have different procedures for being rinsed out and washed and then laid on the altar in smoke. And then the fatty portions. A whole burnt offering. All right. And for three days, he thinks that's what he's going to do. In faith, anticipating it, well, God can uh, bring back the dead if that's what God wants to do. And, and ultimately, is that not the best faith rest drill you've ever thought about? That when it comes down to all those promises God made, God doesn't need Abraham's help keeping them. He's, he's failed in that regard repeatedly. Finally, he's got a victory here saying, God, you don't need any help keeping your promises. You'll do what needs to be done, even if that means bringing Isaac back from the dead. 
What a growth. Because back in chapter 16, Abraham was willing to help out God keep his promises by making a baby with, with Hagar. And, uh, and, and, you know, God doesn't need help keeping his promises. So finally, and what a test to, to sacrifice his son. And he's willing to do it. So the answer to uh, Abraham is, uh, here I am, Hineni. Hineni, if you want to spell it, H-I-N-N-E-N-I-Y. You've got to double the first new and then... Um, or noon, I'm sorry. Hebrew, it's noon. Greek, it's new. Uh, double the N, the first N. You end up with Hanini. Behold I. Behold I. And even this is another verb of seeing. If you command, lo and behold, if you command, behold, it's just another way of saying, look at me here. Look at this. Behold. Okay? I got something I want you to see in the scriptures. Behold. And it's an imperative of seeing. It's a command to look at this. Okay, behold. And then when you tack a knee on the end of it, the, the, e, the I-Y prefix is the me. So, behold me. Don't look at anybody else. Look at me. I'm here. Look at me. And it's pretty fun. And it comes up three times in this chapter. It comes up in verse 1, comes up in verse 7, when Isaac says, uh, my father, he says, behold, look at me. And it comes up in verse 11, when God stays his hand and says, Abraham, Abraham. He says, behold, look at me. I'm the guy here with a knife. <laughs> look at me. Okay? Comes up in Exodus 3, 4, the burning bush. The Lord saw that he turned aside to look, and God said to him from the midst of the bush, said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Hanani, here am I. Look at me. Comes up in Isaiah 6. Isaiah's got a vision of heaven, and he hears the... He sees the angels and he sings, they're singing holy, holy, holy. It's a great heavenly vision. Isaiah 6 is a wonderful chapter. And then he realizes he's doomed. He says, I shouldn't be seeing this. Because I'm a sinner. What am I doing in the holiness of heaven? Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't know what other, other kind of sin patterns I, uh, Isaiah might have, but maybe he just sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, whatever bad language, he swore a lot, whatever the case is, his sin guiltiness focused on his uh, vocabulary. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, okay, we've got something to take care of those lips. And uh, it's a burning coal from the altar. Okay, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Now, are you ready to serve? So I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Hanini, here I am, send me. It's beautiful. Okay? Comes up again in Isaiah 65. And this is where the Lord is a little bit lamenting, a little bit recounting their faithlessness. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I don't know what Calvinists do with this. I don't know. Um, those who do not, but he permitted himself to be sought. Nobody seeks. No, not one. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found. Praise God. Okay? Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it shall be given. Knock and it shall be opened. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. God himself has the Hanani. He's got the double Hanani. Here I am, here am, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. They are the chosen people, but huge stretches of their history were absolute rebellion, darkness, idolatry. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, Offering uh, sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. Sit among graves and spend the night in secret places. Okay, there's a lot of demonism with this. There's a lot of uh, uh, satanic worship. Who eat swine's flesh. Now slow down now, God. I, I, I'm okay with swine's flesh. And the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. 
You know, you, you go into a Jewish household and the kitchen looks just like a Gentile household. What's the difference? And, and they're not observant. They're not watching. They're not walking by faith. They're not identifying as the covenant nation of God. Who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Anyway, there's a, there's a whole lot more here, but um, this, is a, this is an interesting chapter. And it's Isaiah 65 and 66 that introduced the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. I find that interesting. So Hanani, Hanani. Job 38. Job 38. I'm going to run out of time. I am out of time. Okay. Well, there's another Hanani, and he assigns it to the lightning. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go? Every bolt of lightning is dispatched by the sovereignty of God. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Hanani? Okay, so God assigns every blast of every bolt of lightning, and when they strike, the angel can reply, Hanani. I struck where you told me to strike. It is kind of curious that uh, Abraham has to strike where God tells him to strike. And he's willing to do it. And he has the faith to obey. And he has the faith to, to walk by faith, leaving the results in God's hands. Leaving the faithfulness of God for God to fulfill. Leaving all the details up to him. And just doing the part that he's asked to do. That's all any of us are asked to do. All right, well, today is our uh, Communion Sunday. I'm reminded that uh, I'm supposed to stop at the top of the hour. So I'm going to close in prayer. We'll bring the Sunday school in. All right, this is a good start. Well, uh, we've got some good classes coming up. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for truth. Thank you for faith. Thank you for designing a plan of salvation that can be offered by grace and received by faith. And Father, thank you for designing such a plan that whosoever will. Father, I thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. As uh, you opened the door for me yesterday at that funeral service, Father, I, I want to thank you for that. I don't know who there was saved or lost. I didn't know almost anybody there. But Father, uh, I thank you for being faithful. I thank you for Abraham and Isaac. I thank you for what they represent in terms of you and your son. I thank you for the work that you and your son accomplished you and your son accomplished on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. I pray that we start to understand these things. And I pray that as we process these pedagogical doctrines that I thank you for blending our Genesis study with our Ephesians study. And Father, it's, uh, I tremble to think of the depths that you are blessing us with here at this time. So Father, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we uh, reserved our third